Thanks, JP. Julian, good morning, everyone. It's a great day, isn't it? It's beautiful outside, particularly. And, um, you know, well done for being here. You know, there's plenty of distractions in life, isn't there, that keep us from meeting together as God's people, but nothing is more important than meeting with God's people. So well done for being here this morning. It's great to have you. I know plenty are sick, and, uh, you know, we ought to be continuing to pray for people who are unwell. Um, in fact, uh, you know, you may be aware that Josh and Zoe both have COVID this week. Uh, that's why they're not with us, along with Cooper and Naomi as well. So, you know, it's interesting. It's good they get it during the school holidays, though. Yeah. Um, anyway, just, just uh, continue to pray for each other, because I know that plenty of people are unwell and have been unwell over the last couple of weeks, and uh, so we just need to keep each other in our prayers and be looking out for, to care for each other in that time as well. Uh, well, let me pray as we look at this passage of Scripture from God's Word this morning, uh, as we take a little bit of a tangent from where we've been in Isaiah for a bunch of weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do uh, continue to remember where we were last week as we remember that it is the one whom the Lord esteems is he or she who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at your word. And so we do pray this morning that as we open your word together again now, that you would help us to be those who come before you with humble and contrite hearts, open to hear you speak to us. And Father, humbly willing to obey your word as we understand it. Please give us your understanding of your word so that we can obey it well and help us, Lord God, uh, to continue to support, enable, encourage each other to do that as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I say I grew up in a family that uh, loved playing squash. Um, it required a fair degree of skill, squash, right? Which So I understand why younger generations haven't taken it up. Um, you know, I, plan to kind of play on that one a little bit more tonight. But anyway, uh, my, my dad was quite a good squash player, at least as far as I understood. He was a good squash player. And at the place where he worked, uh, there were a lot of young guys. And uh, at one stage, one of these young guys in his early 20s had taken up squash. And he would come to work day after day, and he would boast about how good he was and uh, of how many opponents that he had beaten. Uh, and well, pretty much, uh, much of his work, most of his work colleagues became a little bit tired of his arrogant boasting day after day. And so one of the bosses where my dad worked, who knew my dad well, knew that he could play squash, actually quipped to this young guy that he probably wasn't even good enough to beat my father. Well, the young guy didn't like that very much, and so he actually started to mock my father, whom he thought would be hopeless at squash. And to be fair, my father at the time was probably nearing 50 years of age. Uh, he was more rotund than myself. Sorry, Dad, if you're online this morning. Um, uh, he didn't really look the picture of physical or sporting prowess. But to make matters worse, uh, my dad's boss made a bet with this young guy that he couldn't beat my father. And without my father's knowledge, his boss booked a local squash court, shut the business down early one Friday afternoon and made it a company event uh, to watch my dad and this young punk play a game of squash together. My dad protested, didn't want to do it, but he was uh, won over and he decided to humour his boss and so he ends up down at the squash court. The whole company turns up to watch this squash uh, match. Uh, my father was said continually receiving a barrage of mocking comments uh, from this, uh, his arrogant young opponent and the game got underway. Four or five games later, the arrogant young boaster hadn't won a point and was exhausted and embarrassed. Um, and my point really is, it is possible to have a terribly wrong view of yourself, uh, to think of yourself more highly 
than you ought. Something that the Apostle Paul warns against. To have a wrong view of yourself on the sporting field, uh, to think yourself better than you are, may end up embarrassing. But to have a wrong view of yourself in relation to God is very dangerous. The consequences are much, much, more, uh, are much greater. And so in our passage today, I think that's the issue. Today marks the start of uh, the school holidays, and so we've decided to have this short three-week series on the parables of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Um, and obviously, of course, there are many more than three parables, but we have chosen three that I think tend to re- reflect the upside-down nature of Jesus' kingdom, where the values that Jesus embodies are clearly seen to be different to the values of our world. Now, the parable that we're talking about or looking at this morning is one of the most famous, the Good Samaritan. Uh, Countless organisations actually get their name from this parable. Uh, There are hospitals all around the world called by this name. As a church, uh, each year we support the Samaritan's Purse uh, through their Christmas shoebox appeal for kids. And, of course, there are, are many, many more, aren't there? But what is this parable about? Well, at one level, at a simple uh, reading on the surface, it is is simple, um, although it hasn't always been applied that well. And so there are two questions that I think are worth asking if we're going to apply it rightly. The first is, who is this parable for? The second, why is this parable told? So who is this parable for? Why is this parable told? Now, the immediate context here is a religious lawyer, often called a scribe in the Bible, uh, and he's got a question. Look at verse 25 in your Bibles there. If you've got them open, now's a good time to make sure you have. But verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asks, what must I do? Now, he's the expert in the Old Testament law. It's his job to interpret and explain how it was to be applied in everyday life. And so here's a religious expert wanting to find out how he can have eternal life. What that would seem a little strange, really, only that Luke's comment alerts us to a broader motive, that is, to put him to the test. Now, at best, this is someone who wants to check Jesus out. At worst, it's someone who wants to trip him up. And so he tries to put Jesus on the spot. Okay, Jesus, so what do I have to do? And what a great response, because Jesus turns the question back on him in verse 26. Well, you're the lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, Jesus gives him a chance to air his own views. And you don't normally need to ask a lawyer twice to do that. And so he quotes from the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19, we've had read for us. And he answered, he answered, his answer there in verse 27. He says to him, you shall, this is the, the lawyer, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. Now in a moment, we're going to see that Jesus commends his answer. But before we get there, I think it's already possible to see that there's a fundamental flaw in his understanding of the law that he preaches. Uh, The Ten Commandments, if that is uh, considered a summary of all of God's law, uh, the law given by God to Moses, actually starts with grace. So the Ten Commandments begin, and I think you can see it on the screen there, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So it begins with a reminder of God's salvation of Israel, a reminder of his love, his kindness, his grace. Israel never belonged to God because they kept his law. He chose them. He set his love upon them. The Old Testament law was only ever meant to be a response to God's grace that had already saved them, not because of anything they did for him. The law was never, never given as a way of earning eternal life. And so we need to see that this little encounter comes in the context of, uh, from chapter 9 onwards really, but verses 21 and 22, just before, where Jesus uh, has told us that coming into relationship with God is a matter of God's gift, not through something that I do. In verses 21 and 22, it's God through Jesus who reveals the truth about him to whomever he wishes. And so relationship with God, eternal life, is a gift of God. And Jesus has already made that clear. And so his first answer uh, may at first surprise us. Look at verse 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, at one level, both the religious lawyer and Jesus are right. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbour as yourself, and you will live. Now, the reformer, Martin Luther, understood that idea when he said that Christians should love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and do whatever they want. And he said it because he knew that if we truly love God, then we would do whatever God wants. Because if we truly love God, it would be him that we would be living to please. But Luther also knew the impossibility of any human being doing that perfectly, this side of heaven. But the reality is that if, you, if we could really perfectly keep those commands, we would be acceptable to God. And so perhaps I can get you to raise your hand if you've managed to do that, if you've managed to keep God's law perfectly, if you could just raise your hand. I'm very pleased. Because what we could do, we could actually get, we could put all the people who um, have obeyed God's law perfectly, we could put them on this side, all right? And then we could put all those who are still trying their best to keep God's law, we could put them over on this side, right? Um, and that would mean that this side over here on the right, you'd all have to move, um, this side on the right would actually either be empty or it would be filled with only people who are kidding themselves. Um, and on this side would be people who are completely wasting their time. And so we would need another way. And Jesus knows it. And so he says to this self-righteous religious lawyer, if you think it's a matter of this, then go ahead and keep God's law and then you will live. And what does our lawyer do? Well, notice immediately he starts to try and water down God's law or limit the demands of God's law. Look at his second question there in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbour? And it's a bit confronting when the theory has to become practice. Do this and you will live. Well, hang on. Uh, let's just clear up exactly what you mean by neighbour. And if he's going to maintain his self-righteousness and justify his own moral failings, then he actually needs to limit the idea of neighbour. He needs to lower the bar. Love my neighbour as myself? 
well, okay, but surely that can't mean every person. So who is my neighbour? See, the Jews had limited the idea of your neighbour to someone who shares the same bloodline. Uh, for us, maybe it's an equivalent. An equivalent might be just another Christian. They're the only ones we really need to care about. Or, or maybe even just another Anglican. Just need to care about them. But you see, here is the context, really, in which Jesus answers with this particular parable, the Good Samaritan. So let's just pick it up at verse 30 and see how he answers this, final, this other question. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous, and uh, here Jesus tells a very believable story about where an unknown man, potentially a Jew, uh, is attacked, beaten, robbed, left for dead. And Jesus tells us of three people who are travelling down that road and see this half-dead man lying there bloody and naked. The priest and the Levite represent the religious leaders of God's people. They're the the law keepers, they're the law preachers. The priest officiated in the temple, perhaps he's a little bit like me. Um, the Levite is more like Kurt Peters, perhaps. He's a, they are insisted in the temple. However, I don't think either one of us necessarily want to be considered the same in this space because the priest and the Levite represented legalistic, self-righteous religion that looked down on sinners. Have a look at what they do when they see this half-dead man lying on the side of the road. See verse 31, the priest, when he saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 32, the Levite, when he saw him, passed by on the other side. They both cross over to the other side and leave him lying in his blood. They're important men. Maybe they've got important things to do. Maybe they're thinking, well, you know, if I don't get down to Jericho on time, who's going to lead the Bible study? I don't have time to stop. Or the ambulance is probably already on its way. At no point, everyone getting involved. But there's a third traveller going down the same road, a Samaritan. And look at the contrast. Verse 33, the Samaritan, when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, to get the full force of the parable, you've got to get who the Samaritan was. Uh, these were the mixed-blood Jews the mongrels, because of their intermarriages with non-Jews who had invaded their cities north of Jerusalem uh, at various points in history. They were religiously, ethnically, socially, culturally despised. The Jews hated them. The Samaritan is not the good guy. They're not the ones who are fit for eternal life. In fact, the title Good Samaritan was an oxymoron to the Jew. But, but in this story, it's the hated Samaritan who embodies what the law is really all about. Compassion, mercy, love, kindness. 
they're the central building blocks of God's law. And so the priest and the Levite are in the same camp as the self-justifying lawyer who wants to limit God's law and still claim the high ground, who think they get into God's good books by doing things but haven't even begun to obey God's law. See, they're the ones who think of themselves more highly than they ought. And so to the question, who is this parable for? Well, yes, it's for the self-righteous lawyer who wants to limit his responsibility to love his neighbour and obey his God. But it's for far more than him, can I say. I think it's fair to say it's for everyone who thinks they're good enough to be accepted by God on their terms. It's really for anyone who thinks that they are good enough to earn their way into eternal life. And you might be surprised to know that that is most people. You know, one of the things that I've learnt doing funerals for our community is that most people believe that their loved ones, who may have never mentioned the name of Jesus, only use it as a swear word, they believe their loved ones who have passed away have done enough to be on the right side of the ledger to be welcomed into heaven. See, the lawyer is self-righteous. He doesn't believe he needs forgiveness. And in that sense, he represents anyone who has rejected Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers and that we all need. See, people manage to lower the bar so far so as to think, I don't need forgiveness. And so they reject Jesus. And that leads us to why, I think, towards why this parable is told. So here is, here's the answer to the self-righteous lawyer's question regarding who his neighbour can be limited to. Look at, Jesus asks him, see verse 36 and 37, verse 37? He says to him, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, notice the lawyer can't even bring himself to name him. Who proved to be the neighbour, Jesus asks? Not the Samaritan, but the one who had mercy, he says. In other words, everyone is your neighbour, regardless of colour, race or creed. You, you cannot limit God's law. There's no social, cultural, religious limits to God's law. The reason no one can get into God's kingdom by keeping the law is that none of us is fully able to keep God's perfect law. I mean, the law is good, but we can't do it. The law actually shows us our sin. It shows us that we need God's forgiveness. I mean, the young guy who thought he was good at squash, he realised just how far, far he fell short when he came up against someone who could actually play. Yes, we are to love God with all of our hearts, soul, mind and strength. Yes, we are to love our neighbour. And how am I to love my neighbour? I'm to love my neighbour as myself. The fact that we don't ever do it as well as we should doesn't mean that we don't seek to obey God's perfect law. Of course we do. But we don't do it to earn brownie points, to earn eternal life. We do it in response to the salvation that God has already provided as a gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, Jesus tells us back in verse 22 that to know God 
and the eternal life he offers freely comes only to those to whom the Son, that is Jesus, reveals him. It's exactly what Jesus says again in John chapter 17, verse 3. I think it's there on the screen. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, this parable is told for any self-justifying person who thinks they can get into God's good books by keeping the law, or more broadly, by simply doing good things. See, Luke makes that clear in the little encounter with two friends uh, the two friends of Jesus and the encounter that they had with him in verses 38 to 42. Jesus is visiting his good friends, Mary and Martha. Uh, Luke tells us that Martha is up serving, preparing lunch, setting the table, doing the dishes, while Mary is just sitting on the couch listening to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Martha's the good one. She's pulling her weight. She's doing all the work. She's the one I like. Um, Mary's the bludger just sitting down, enjoying Jesus while her sister does all the work. And so Martha's annoyed and she appeals to Jesus, surely Mary should be helping me and you ought to tell her to. You've got to be careful, don't you, when you appeal to Jesus to settle your disputes. Look at Jesus' response in verse 41. Martha, Martha, Jesus says, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Do you want eternal life? Only one thing is necessary. Listen to Jesus, because he alone has the words of eternal life. And do you think that you can make it to heaven by being a good Samaritan? You can't. We need a saviour. And can I say that this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion? And you may have heard this before, but let me just say it again. All the world's religions fit into one of two baskets. One of them is the do basket, okay? In fact, nearly all religions tell you that you have to do something to reach heaven. So Islam has their five pillars and their fasting, etc. Buddhism has their eightfold path. Uh, for Hindus, it's karma. I mean, even the culturally religious Anglican has their rules. Just be a nice person. So basically, all the religions of the world tell you to do something. But Christianity alone is in, in the second basket. It is the done basket. Because Christianity is the only religion that tells you it's not about what you do. Rather, Christianity is all about what God has done for you. It tells you that you're a sinner and that you fail to live up to God's standard. But that Jesus, in love, has paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. And he is the only one who has perfectly kept God's law on your behalf. So if you want eternal life, you need to receive it from Jesus as a gift. And so I want to say that this parable isn't told for people who have already accepted the forgiveness of Jesus. If that's you, this parable is not told directly for you. Sure, you've got to be careful not to become self-righteous and hypocritical. But this is not a parable to tell you to try harder. It's not telling you to do more. It's not about trying to load guilt on top of you. See, when you truly come to know the forgiveness of Jesus, it's freedom. 
It liberates you to serve him out of joy. You know, when I was in my 20s, I went to a church that dealt with a lot of addicts, alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers, that sort of thing. Many of their lives were seriously messed up. Uh, One of those guys, let's call him Larry, uh, came through one of our rehabilitation programs and was truly converted to Christ. He started coming to church. He was filled with joy. His life had been turned around. But as he grew to understand how sinful he had been and how good God had been to him, he realised that he had to deal with some other areas of his life. See, Larry had also been in and out of prison for a variety of crimes, some serious. But now that he was a a Christian and loving the forgiveness that God had given to him and the kindness and compassion that God had shown to him, he was aware that there were a number of crimes that he had committed but had never been caught for. And so he came to us and he said, I can't accept all that God has done for me and not own up to the wicked things that I have done. And so he took our minister with him to the police station and confessed to all the crimes that they had never caught him for. Uh, They were obviously gobsmacked. Uh, He knew it would mean more jail time for him, and it did. But he was released early because of his exemplary behaviour. But while he was in there, he gave his time to telling people of the free forgiveness that isn't dependent upon what we do and that he was exhibit number one. But it is, he said, freely available to everyone because of all that Jesus has already done for us. See, Larry wasn't good. He knew he wasn't good. But he came to Jesus for forgiveness, and he has inherited eternal life as a true child of God. See, so often it's the most unlikely, the most unexpected people who recognise their need for forgiveness and find themselves in God's kingdom. Friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your wonderful goodness to us. Father, thank you for your grace, your compassion, your love, your mercy, your kindness. Thank you that we, Father, are like uh, the one that was bloodied and left to, to die on the side of the road. But you in your mercy have saved us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us. And so, Father, we thank you uh, that you have done so much for us. Help it to drive our behaviour so that we love you more and more and so that we love our neighbour as ourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing.